something like 80% of people, according to the latest research, struggle to maintain their New Year's resolutions beyond February. And by the end of the year, it's upward of 90%. So we pick these big goals, these big things that we're going to resolve to do. They sound great. And yet most of us fail. Today, we are going to talk about why people fail and what we can do not to. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus and joined as always by my good friend, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man? Not so much, Steve. I am doing well. I am hanging on tight to my New Year's resolution of the digital Sabbath. I don't feel like I'm going to fall off the bandwagon, but um, it's February and it's the time when people start to fall off the bandwagon. Something like 80% of people according to the latest research, struggle to maintain their New Year's resolutions beyond February. And by the end of the year, it's upward of 90%. So we pick these big goals, these big things that we're going to resolve to do. They sound great. And yet most of us fail. I've certainly failed in the past. I know you have too, Steve. And today we are going to talk about why people fail and what we can do not to. You know, the way I kind of vision it is, we st- we're at the, as everything, it's a running analogy, but we get all excited. We're at the starting line. We sprint off the line. We're doing great. And then shortly into the race, we realize like, oh, this kind of sucks. And that's what this kind of February is. It's like you get through that first little bit, that sprint, that energy. You're like, I can do this. I'm running a race, blah, blah, blah. And then you're just like, oh, this kind of sucks. Like, I have to do this. I have to keep yeah. going. And to carry out the analogy, at the start of the race, like you got all these people around you and they're all starting the race with you. And the announcer is screaming, you know, have a great race and the weather is good and everyone's talking about the race and people are cheering. And then suddenly you find yourself at mile four and the pack has spread out and there's not a soul on the side of the road watching you. And it's hard. It is. So, man, we could take that analogy all the way, but it's difficult. So what we're going to do is kind of go through... As Brad said, you know, what to do. And I think, I think number one, you know, the first thing that I think is that we got to lower the bar a little bit in the sense that we often fall off the wagon because we set expectations so high because we are at the start of that race and everything. We have friends and support and doing all this stuff. And then we're alone. You know, actually, there's two pieces of advice coming out of this. But one is we set the bar because we're energized and excited. So we set the bar pretty high. And then reality smacks us in the face. And often that reality smacks us in the face a little bit in February, where like that excitement is waning. So to me, it's lowering the bar from like perfect to like good enough. And good enough is what's going to get you through not just February, but the rest of the year. Like, what is it that, you know, will be good enough? And I'll give an example from my life is, you know, often when I start back in exercising or running, I get like energized on like, oh, I'm going to do this because... 
and this includes like some crazy amount of training or something because that's what I've done in the past. And then life gets in the way. And then I realize mm-hmm. that I'm not a college kid anymore training for a race and that, you know, maybe I don't want to run so many miles. And I really have to set that floor of like, well, what does it mean? You know, my goal might have been to get in X, Y, and Z shape, but like, what am I really trying to get out of this? And sometimes that means setting the floor of like, you know what, if you get out the door five days a week and run 30 minutes or more, like, it's great. And if I can go beyond that, great. If I don't want to, good enough. And it just kind of allows me to stay in the game long enough to, you know, get fit enough where I get to decide, well, what I want to do with that fitness. All right. So that advice would have been really helpful to people, Steve, in December, but now it's February and many of us have already chosen our New Year's resolution. So here's what I'd say. If you're already failing or you've fallen off the path, hopefully you can pause and adjust your goal and say, hey, I haven't really fallen off the path. I've learned something. This is like an acute failure in a longer process. And perhaps my goal to run six days a week for an hour a day doesn't make sense, but I can shift and I can run four days a week for at least 20 minutes a day and do more if I want. If you're crushing your New Year's resolution, your goal for the years, perhaps you don't change anything at all. Maybe you set the expectation right initially, or maybe you'll hear this and you'll downshift your expectation. This is something that we've talked about before on the podcast. What often happens is what behavioral scientists very aptly call the what the hell effect. And when you have a really high bar and a lofty goal or aspiration and you fall off even just a little bit short, you say, well, what the hell or to hell with it. Guess that's not for me. And then it all goes to hell in a handbag really fast. And that is such a common trap. So I think what Steve's point is, is that we want to be principle-based on our goals and resolutions, not so principle-based that the goal is just like, oh, run more or be healthy or be present because that's meaningless, but also not so rigid that we want to be like, meditate 25 minutes a day, or like I said, run an hour a day or else therefore I fail. And then once you start feeling like a failure, you fall off the bandwagon. Um, it's about going out in a marathon. Ideally, you go out at the right pace with the right expectation. But if you don't and you go out too hot, well, you would know better than me, Steve, is the, the running nerd on this podcast, but you probably have a window of opportunity where you can downshift your pace and like get some nutrition and some, some hydration in and still run a really good race. Actually, I know this back from when I was um, a triathlon bro is I, I was really a triathlon bro. I used to study like the best splits for the best triathlon races. And what they showed is often there was a very slight positive split in like the first two, three miles of a race, whether it was the swim leg, I guess not miles for that, it would be, you know, 100 meters, the bike leg or the marathon. And then people that raced really well, they actually slowed down a bit before speeding back up again. And what this accounts for is that intensity and that enthusiasm that you you do go out kind of fast. And sometimes like withholding yourself works against you because it takes so much psychological energy to show restraint. 
you don't want to go out so fast that you're burning all your matches, but it's okay to go out hard so long as then you're able to downshift instead of being like, holy shit, I'm at mile four and I'm on Kipchoge pace. I need to pull out of this race. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. And that's what I'm getting at is to use our running analogy is what happens is there's two things that happen, right? You go out a little fast and there's those that say, you know what? We're out this fast. Let's keep pushing. And then there's those that, that adjust and say, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This might not be, you know, right for me. And what ooh, happens? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Let me interject real quick while we play out this analogy, okay? okay. So for the non-runners, this is like the person that that is um, I don't know, that's gonna like lose 35 pounds or meditate their way to enlightenment and they're on like a crazy calorie restriction or they're going from no meditation to an hour a week. And um, man, they're just flying by you. But these are the people that then you pass later on in the race. <laughs> so it, eight months later, while they haven't you know, lost any weight or while they're no longer meditating at all, you are well on your path to healthier habit change. Um, and, and you kind of smile at them as, and they're like, how'd you get here? You started off so slow. And you're like, exactly. That's it. I mean, that's the perfect analogy because what happens is those who go out too fast and don't adjust maybe when all the signals, and this is the other running analogy, how do you know you went out too fast? Like all the signals are there to tell you, right? Maybe you're breathing a little bit harder, you're feeling it in your legs, like you can't talk, whatever it is, the signals are there. And often in our life, the signals are there telling us that maybe, you know, exercising seven days a week or, you know, meditating every day for 30 minutes when you have, you know, new kids or whatever have you, like maybe that's not sustainable. And whether it's fatigue, whether it's just apathy, whether it's something else, those are the signals that are telling you, hey, like we're going out too fast. And the the kind of like old school tough mentality, you know, these are my goals and they're set in stone tells us like, just push ahead. But what happens is you become that marathoner who went too fast, didn't adjust. And then a couple miles later goes from running six minute miles to nine minute miles because it's not sustainable. And then they either drop out or run super slow. So to complete the analogy, what we're telling you is essentially if you adjust, maybe you go from trying to run a 310 marathon to a 315 and you finish the race and you're like, you know what? 315 is still pretty damn good. If you don't adjust, what happens? You go from running a 310 to four hours plus and you're miserable if you finish. And if you not, if you didn't, it's because you dropped out. So, you know, adjust along the way. It's okay. It's not a failure to give yourself a little wiggle room, which allows you to complete the task in a manageable and sustainable way. Well, nothing helps complete hard tasks more than good coaching and having some community and having someone to walk the path with you. So two things for you. First, if you haven't, pick up both of our books. They're available wherever books are sold. If you read on a Kindle, you can download them. If you prefer to listen, they're on Audible and other audio platforms. The Practice of Groundedness by yours truly and Do Hard Things by Steve. Both of these books are on sustainable 
keywords, sustainable performance and sustainable progress. They are the perfect companion as you get through these early miles of a marathon towards your big goals. The second thing is to check out our Patreon, www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. For as little as the price of a cup of fancy coffee, you get inclusion to a quarterly mastermind group, a monthly book club where we bring in best-selling authors. You get signed copies of whatever book we put out that year. We've got a new book coming out later this year. It's a great one. You'll be first to get it. It will be customized for you and so many other goodies. So if you enjoy this podcast and you want to go deeper, first things first, if you haven't yet, read or listen to both of our books. We promise you, I can almost guarantee it. I can guarantee it. If you find this podcast valuable, these books are going to really help you. And then second, join our Growth Equation Patreon community. All right. Well, there are just a few caveats there, Steve, that I think are, are worth pointing out. For certain goals where the thing that you're trying to stop doing or the thing that you're doing has a very addictive quality, good enough often fails. And I'm thinking about my own resolution of a digital Sabbath. So if I were to tell myself, you know, instead of taking 24 hours where my my phone and my my devices are all hidden, I'm going to like take 15 hours or like I'm going to going to check just twice during that period. There's no way it would work. If I tried to check just twice, I'd get sucked in and it would be more. And if I did it for any less than 24 hours, I would never get into a rhythm of like living without a device. Because anyone that's tried to do this knows that the first half day, you're just constantly restless and thinking about checking your email. And it takes about a half day before you can start to truly be present and, and your world opens up again. So I think that that is an important caveat, especially given that so many people do have goals and resolutions around behavioral addictions in our social media age. Um, that sometimes you have to be a little bit rigid. Now, maybe here where good enough makes sense is I didn't say like I'm going to be without my phone the entire weekend. I said it's going to be 24 hours. Um, but once you have that that goal set, I think that you can get into trouble allowing for wiggle room. Yeah, you can. It's like the nuance, you know. It's the you allow yourself, and what what I'm recalling is the I think I believe it was Katie Milkman did this study or her lab, or the lab she works in, is where they looked at exercisers in their goal, and they found that those whose goals were five days a week with, uh, or minimum kind of five days with two cheat days in there, versus those who went all in seven days, or those who said, I'm going to do five days no matter what. It was those with cheat days who did better. Right? And in that, those cheat days are kind of defined. You're giving yourself two cheat days, not three, four, five, whatever, the whole week off. And I think that's important because within that wiggle room, you've given yourself constraints. So you still have the goal. You don't have zero constraints by saying it's seven days no matter what, right? But you give that, okay, I have permission to take this many outs. And more often than not, you're not going to take the out, but if you need it, you take it, and it's not a big kind of um, weight on your shoulder that that you know takes it off or whatever have you. Yeah, I think that that's that's a really good um, that's a good tie-in of of 
it is Katie Milkman's research. She's done so much of the good research on this uh, on this topic of of resolutions. Um, okay, so then I think the only other thing worth mentioning, given where we are in the year, is that if you are cruising and you do feel like you're running a PR marathon and this year is going to be the one, remember that you're still only at like mile four of the race. And it's really wise to show restraint early so you can push harder later on. I think this is true in just about any big goal. It's most marked when people are creating something, whether that's trying to create a change in their fitness by exercising more or training more, or whether that's trying to start a newsletter or a blog. You start well, you set a pretty good expectation, right size goal, so you don't flame out early. And right about now, you catch your groove. And you're like, oh, low bar squatting feels pretty good. I can write a newsletter. I can write one twice a month. You know, Seth Godin does that thing where he does one every day. Maybe I should do that. And that's a trap too. So um, the name of the game at this stage is, is restraint. So even if everything is clicking and you want to do more, remember that you're very early on and there's going to be a time and a place when everything's not clicking. You're going to have the flu. Someone in your family is going to get sick and you're going to have to take care of them. Um, it's been really sunny the past two months where I am. Eventually it's going to be gray and it's going to have a season of rain and you might not be as motivated and as energetic. Like All these things can happen. So it's so important if what you're after is the long game to show restraint early on. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's a great, great point. And it really is like playing that long game, which is the difference. It's like that short term versus long term, which we've talked about all the time is a lot of times all we do is we narrow in our vision and see what's right in front of us. And I'm just going to go all in on these running analogies. But what often happens is we get to that middle part of the race where it hurts a lot and our brain is screaming at us that this sucks. So what happens is it looks at the short-term solution. What's the short-term solution? Like find a porta pot to go like hide in so you can get out of the race or like step in a hole so you get out of it. It's the choose the candy to fulfill the hunger instead of the vegetables. And what we're saying is if you're playing the long game, you have to understand that there's going to be these short-term things that kind of pull you away, but you don't want them to pull you away from, um, from you know, to all the way spiraling, all the way to like quit, freak out, like done, what the hell effect, all that stuff. And what often prevents you from spiraling out of that is like zooming out a little bit, getting a little perspective and reminding yourself of the long game which sometimes means, again, lowering the bar, like we said, but other times just involves like what you said, Brad, which is essentially changing your perspective there on like, okay, what is the actual you know goal or the actual thing I'm trying to do here? Yep. The only, the only other piece of evidence that I tie in um, is uh, Danny Kahneman and Amos Traversky's planning fallacy, um, which was part of the body of work that won Kahneman a Nobel Prize in, um, in psychology. And um, it's really simple. For any big project, it always goes about 40% over what people plan for. So this is most commonly observed when a municipality decides that they're going to add a bike lane or the state government says we're going to build a bridge or you're building a house and the general contractor says it's going to take nine months, 
it always takes 40% more. Why is that? Because you only plan for the things that you anticipate happening. You, it's impossible to anticipate all the random stuff that's going to happen that could slow down or maybe speed up, but almost always slow down your process. And um, maybe not to the 40% extent, but my sense is that this also happens on smaller individual goals. Now, I say maybe not to the 40% extent because less can go wrong if, if it's just you trying to do something, but there's still a lot that you can't control. And um, I think that if we get too attached to a plan, that's another pitfall where um, where we can we can really run ourselves into the ground by trying to stick to a plan when the situation has changed. Now, you might be thinking like, "Wow, Brad and Steve, like y'all are really soft on this stuff." And I don't think we are. I think what we're saying is what allows you to be hard and what allows you to go full out, you know, David Goggins and Jocko and crush the goal over the long term is having this level of nuance. And we feel strongly that there are enough insufferable Twitter bros out there telling you to be disciplined and to crush it and to, you know, just constantly grind. And there's enough podcasts where that's the main message. Um, you already know that that's important. What we're trying to do is provide the other side of that coin based on the literature and based on our own experience, not just tweeting motivational saying, but actually coaching world-class performers. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> it's it's funny because I think, and this is something we've talked about in other podcasts, but it's like easy and tempting and, so, and gets the likes and followers if you say like, hey, just grit it out, grind, be tough. Like this is what separates you from, you know, other people. It's like a message that kind of people want to hear, but what we're about is reality. And the last part I'd say is, is in addition to what we've said here on if you feel like you're falling off the bandwagon, is to ask yourself, and we mentioned this a little bit before, but I, I think it's worth noting, ask yourself, do you have the environment and support system around you to support what you're doing? And if you if if often what happens is we get all energized, we get excited to use the running analogy. We're at the starting line. We're surrounded by a bunch of people and friends and family might be watching us. We got the announcer, as Brad said, you know, hyping us up. And then we go on the race, and all those people are are kind of gone. Well, what you need to do is find a way to bring some of those people with you right? To support. In the race analogy, it could be saying, hey, you know, mom, dad, brother, sister, I want you at mile five or 10 or 20 or whatever it is of the race so that it supports you and reminds you, okay, I'm here with other people. Like I've got an environment, right? Or it could be a training partner along with the run or a coach that helps you get there. And I think too often with our goals, stepping out of the running analogy, with our goals, we get all excited and maybe in a group and discuss them. But, and then we think like we buy into that individual kind of, I'm going to be tough and gritty and determined and motivated. And then that goes by the wayside once we are doing the thing consistently. So bringing in back that support and that environment goes a long way to getting you back on track. In that support, as we always say, ideally it's in person, it's in your community, it's in real life. If that's not available because those around you aren't aligned on what you're trying to accomplish, or perhaps you live in a really rural area 
and your goal is to um, to run a race, and there just aren't that many people that are into running where you live, then online communities can be really helpful for this sort of thing. So I think that um, you don't again you don't want to let perfect be the enemy of good, but you don't want to let good get in the way of better. And what I mean by that is if the reason that you're finding your support primarily through the internet is because it's more efficient than doing it in your community, then I think that you're thinking of efficiency on the wrong timescale. I'd encourage you to make community bonds and get in real life support. If the reason your support is predominantly through the internet is because there genuinely aren't enough people around you trying to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish, then support on the internet is one of the best things that the internet can offer. Agreed, 100%. So, you know, to summarize, support, set the right expectations, know when to pivot, being okay to pivot, not tying your identity to, you know, oh, I'm the person who never gives up or what have you, having the freedom to do that. Um, And as Brad said, you know, find that good balance between good, perfect, and I got to say it, all that good stuff. (laughs) man Steve says all that good stuff Uh, for new listeners if you are somebody that is okay drinking alcohol and you want to play a drinking game along with this podcast as long as you are not driving um, every time Steve says and all that good stuff you take a drink every time I swear you take a drink and um, yeah it's probably not it we don't advise getting drunk so it's probably actually not a good game for anyone to play Joking aside, if you like this podcast, uh, the best thing that you can do for us is to share it with friends and family and colleagues that you think would enjoy it as well. There is a freaking plethora, a deluge, a tsunami of podcasts out there that allege to help you do better and feel better. Um, We like to think that we are at the pointy end of that and we're one of the few that is not just peddling hacks and motivational aphorisms, but actually providing nuance and hopefully helping people making an impact in your lives and um, helping your teams do better and feel better. So if you like the show, tell your friends about it, leave a rating or review. And uh, with that, we'll catch you next Wednesday morning. Mm -hmm.